Thank you, Rich. Actually, that word was really right on for us. Our church weekend away a few months ago in a much colder Scotland, uh, even wetter than this. And um, our whole theme was around maturing and being rooted in Christ. And uh, that is our prayer, that we too as a church would multiply by being rooted deeper into him and then seeing his glorious gospel seed spread across Glasgow and then across Scotland. We have loved being with you this weekend. It has felt like coming home. And uh, one of the most amazing things, though, for us was not just the kind of familiar relationships that we already have with so many while we were here that have been built, but building relationships with new people. And that is the most obvious sign of multiplication as soon as we came into the room that is already taking place here at Gateway. And uh, we are just thrilled to see God doing that. But can I just commend you in a couple of other areas of multiplication before I get going in Joshua 1? Because I think some of these areas are maybe more cultural things, quite subjective, quite hard to measure. And uh, I see so much growth in these areas. First one is this, freedom. There is more freedom in this room than there was when we left. God has been growing freedom in the way that you talk to one another, people willing to confess and repent to one another and talk openly and honestly about what's going on in their lives. That kind of freedom breeds a culture of grace, and um, we're just amazed to see what God is doing there. But also up front, lots of people leading not just one or two voices, but lots of other voices also chipping in, and there seems to be a real freedom to be yourself, to be the person that God has made you to be. And that kind of goes along with the next one, which is leadership. Like, I've always known that you guys have got a really strong leadership team, but it's widened and it's deepened. There are more people leading in the room, and the leaders that we knew five years ago have gone deeper into Christ, and we can see a a maturing in that leadership uh, that seems to just be getting you, has been getting you ready for this moment where you are multiplying and growing. That's really exciting. And it It's really exciting for me to see because I think, man, the capacity has increased. And so what God might do in the future, well, let's see. Exciting. Really exciting. Last one, a kind of mutual submission. What do I mean by that? I've spoken to a number of people who maybe five years ago would have been slightly more cynical, a little bit more reserved, Just wait and see, see how it goes. It seems like many people have decided, I see Jesus in this, and I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to get behind the leadership, and I'm just going to go for it with my brothers and sisters and see what God does. Can I commend you on that? I think that is an extraordinary thing. It's bringing unity, and where there is unity, wow, there is so much potential for what God might do. So those are just a few things that we've noticed and praise God for them. The Glasgow Grace story was birthed in a gateway prayer meeting as we were telling you the other night on Friday and Vicky Clark had a very specific prophetic word as part of that. She said, I feel like God wants you to climb a mountain and to pray over Scotland where God will advance his kingdom in your lifetime. Got it recorded and so we did it. On a spring day, we went up with wee Annabelle on my back, 
and a couple of great friends who have planted a church in a place called Inverness, called Living Hope. And we climbed to the top of Cairngorm, and the views were extraordinary, almost from coast to coast. And we were full of faith and courage. There was so much chatter about, what is God going to do in our lifetime? We're believing for big things. I could almost hear John Knox, that great reformer who said, give me Scotland or I die. (laughs) I was in my most excitable, faith-filled kind of moment. It doesn't take long for those faith-filled moments to be challenged. We were heading up the M6, driving north, to one of the least churched cities in Europe with no team, no home, long story, and gray skies. Away from the best church we've ever been a part of. Try not to cry. And from family just down the road. And towards, or sorry, away from uh, the big, glowy, shiny thing in the sky. (laughs) And um, my sincerest apologies, by the way, for this weekend. We've clearly brought the weather with us. (laughs) We kind of got to this moment where we're going up the road. I just prayed, Lord, what are we doing? What is going on? This seems mad. And when it comes to faith, I suspect most of us have had several moments and seasons of cynicism like that. We start making excuses for our previous excitement. We put it down to getting caught up in a moment at a weekend away like this, or at a conference, maybe even to the frontal cortex finally developing. (laughs) But what if it's not? What if it isn't wisdom, but foolishness? What if it's less maturity, more a lack of courage to follow God's ways? This morning, we're going to explore the multiplying effect of kingdom courage. So, if you've got a Bible, please do grab it. Turn to Joshua 1, where the Israelites are getting ready to enter the promised land. Some of you are desperate to get back to your own beds after a couple of nights under canvas. We'll spare a thought for the Israelites. It's been nearly 40 years under canvas. Nomads waiting, dreaming, panting for this Eden-like land flowing with milk and honey beyond the Jordan. God is giving it into their hands, but as we will see, it's also going to require some supernatural courage to cross the mighty Jordan and face the Amorite tribes, those battle-hardy tribes. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and we'll read up to the end of verse 11. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, 
and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Verse 1 is emphatic. It's a declaration that Moses is now dead. Deed, as we say in Glasgow. Pan breed. It's so important. God repeats it a second time in verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then. What's that about? Why is this here? How is this going to help Joshua and the people find the courage that they need to cross the Jordan and defeat the Amorites? Well, although Moses had been an extraordinary leader, and as Deuteronomy finishes, he was the best leader. There was no one like Moses. The people were separated from the land while Moses was alive. His death was to be a signal that the time had finally come to enter, to enter the land that is far more life-giving than the barren wilderness they've been in for 40 years. Moses and Aaron's generation were never going to cross the Jordan, even if they had wanted to. Their disobedience, their sin had kept them from it. And it wasn't just the fault of the 10 out of the 12 spies sent out from Kadesh who saw the giant Amorites before them and got scared in that Sunday school story that most of us are familiar with in Numbers 13. It was Moses too. God had given Moses and Aaron clear instructions in Numbers 20. Again, at Kadesh, a word that sounds strikingly similar to kadosh, meaning holiness. Speak to the rock and water will flow. That was the command. Did Moses speak to the rock and did water flow? No, he didn't speak to the rock. He struck the rock. He didn't listen carefully to the words of the Lord. And then he gets really angry. Why does he get really angry? Not because people have been disobedient to God, but because they have been disobedient to him. He makes it about him. Even Moses, this great leader, only second to Jesus in all of Scripture. And he makes it about him. In that moment, 
he was unwilling to die to himself and his ways. And the consequences were division from the life-giving land and this land that was blessed by God. And so they must remain in the cursed land, the barren land, the land that is not fruitful. Perhaps there are things in your life where you're asking, God, why haven't you done that thing for me yet? I'll really be able to follow you properly when you finally provide. Fill in that blank. The career, that family, that house, that version of success that I so desperately need, want. That husband or that wife. To get rid of that husband or that wife. Fill in your blanks. But perhaps God isn't holding out on you. You're holding out on God. Demanding that you will only follow him if it includes this or that. But counterintuitively, God calls us to die to our own ways if we want to find life. And in verses 7 through 8, God spells out his ways and the preconditions to finding life. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. But how do we do that? I mean, how am I supposed to put myself to death? How am I supposed to allow myself to follow the law to die to myself, and then to follow the law in every way. I can't even remember to empty the dishwasher. Even when I'm really careful, I seem to mess up. Surely, like Moses, who had been so faithful, I will find that I reach that proverbial moment when I don't speak to the rock, I strike it. This disobedient wilderness generation points to a far bigger problem, a problem that we all suffer, not just to this generation, not just to this nation, but to all people everywhere, that it is impossible in the struggle to die to the old self and to become the person we are made to be, not in our own strength. And the truth is, Moses' death isn't the beginning of a happily ever after for Israel. Joshua ended up sinning in a similar way. He didn't take all the land as he was supposed to. And the period following is the judges. And the judges is a chaotic, desperate time. Israel needed something more. They needed to wait for another death. They needed to wait in order to be released from this perpetual cycle of hope and disappointment, holiness and sin. When he did come, he described his wait to die as his time or his hour, having not yet come, and the kingdom has not yet been given. His hour, his time, was the cross, his death. As the time approached, Jesus spoke about it like this in John 12. 
the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Moses had to die before the Israelites could enter the land, and it prefigures the whole world's wait for the death of Jesus our King. But opposite to Moses, Jesus reverses the curse through, curse through obedience. Jesus, the embodiment of the law, died so that Moses and the rest of us could exchange all of our disobedience with him and enter into his kingdom because of his holiness. He gives us his righteousness, and we have our sin dealt with by him in his death on the cross. Moses and the spies had failed to do God's word from Kadesh, the holy place. But the word who became flesh was willingly taken outside of Jerusalem, the holy city. And he was killed, crucified on a cursed tree. That vivid imagery in Genesis 3 of the curse of those thorns are pressed into his head. And there... In perfect obedience to the Father, the Holy One was cursed so we could be blessed, dead so we could have life. How can we truly die to self and find a new life we were made to live by submitting ourselves to the death of Christ, to die with Him, to have our old lives put to death on the cross before we enter in to a new life. Jesus is our greater Moses. That's New Testament language from Hebrews 3, releasing us from our old life of sin for the life of the kingdom of God. And he is also our better Joshua, our salvation. Through his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, he leads us from death like the fruitless deserts of the wilderness, to life like the fruitful land on the other side of the Jordan. In fact, this book could be called Jesus. Joshua in Hebrew is Jesus in Greek, and both mean God is salvation. The book of Joshua is supposed to scream to us, Jesus, you need Jesus. Now that their time has come to enter the land, it would be madness, would it not, for one of the Israelites to turn and say, you know what, crossing that Jordan, take it on the Amorites, that looks a wee bit scary to me. It all looks a bit like it might be a, much, a bit much effort. I think I'll just stay over here in the wilderness and forge out a life my own way. I'm quite comfortable in my wee tent anyway. And, uh, you know, I'll be all right. Cheers. Enjoy the wine. How much more foolish would it be to say, 
I don't really want the resurrection life. I don't think I'll die with Christ and enter in. I'll just make the best of my life out here in the wilderness without him. No, we need so much more than what's on offer in the world. It will never last. It will fade away. It's a fake. It's a pretender. Whatever you think is better than dying to self and following in the ways and the life of Jesus and this new kingdom that he has brought, it is not worth it. In the end, it's pathetic. It'll be burned up, not remembered. But this kingdom is everlasting. And so is his love. Jesus has brought a kingdom that is fruitful, like we see in Eden and in the promised land. But let me be clear. It is not like Eden in that it is dependent on Adam and Eve's obedience. And it is not like the promised land in that it is dependent on the obedience of Joshua and the people. There is a new life to step into. But it does not depend on our obedience. That kingdom is everlasting. It will never change. That truth will never change. You are secure in the kingdom of God. But through obedience, you can enter into more of the life that God has for you. This is the way it's put in Romans 6 by the Apostle Paul. You've been buried with him. And you have been raised with him. So that you might walk in newness of life. The multiplying effect of kingdom courage does not begin with your brawn or your brains or your obedience. It begins with a death, a death that brings life and an unfailing, everlasting, multiplying kingdom. And now get ready. The fight for multiplying life is on. In chapter 1, God commands Joshua and the people of God to be courageous four times. I think he had something important to say. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, be strong and be very courageous. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Verse 18, only be strong and courageous. He could do so because they had died with Moses, like our sin died with Christ. And now there was a new life to step into. But the Israelites are still to the east of the Jordan, and the task before them is enormous. It would have been hugely daunting, a feeling that most of us, I think, will be familiar with when we think about the Great Commission that we have been given. Before the Israelites even look across the Jordan to the fighting nations of the Amorites, where anything goes, including the most brutal of murders, there is this not-so-small issue of the River Jordan. The Jordan acted as a definite and formidable dividing line. It's not like you could just wander across it in the shallows. It was a huge barrier from the promised land, mountains on both sides. The river flowed through this really deep gorge, most of the way down to the Dead Sea. So how 
Will they actually cross this thing with all their caravans and their livestock and their luggage and their children and their sick? And how can they even consider themselves a formidable enough force to deal with the battle-ready tribes? Sure, God had freed the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians. He had humbled Pharaoh. He divided the larger Red Sea and crushed their enemies beneath the waves. But that was when the great Moses was leading. What about now? Joshua would have been desperately needing God's words in verse 5. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Later, after God has brought them through the Jordan. In chapter 5, Joshua faced his first big military challenge beneath the towering walls of the heavily fortified city of Jericho. And there a man appears, and he calls himself the commander of the Lord's army. The description actually matches what God said of himself to Moses when he said that he would fight for them back in Deuteronomy 20. Joshua would remember that. And so Joshua rightly falls down and he worships him. Joshua worships the true Joshua. I believe that is an appearing of Jesus. Jesus was with them. Jesus was fighting with them. A small glimpse into Jesus' call on the church to advance with him in the world today. Since Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and the pouring out of his spirit, he hasn't been leading his people, you may have noticed, to build, I hope you have, a Christian kingdom with borders for the people of the world to come and view and be amazed at. He has been building a spiritual kingdom. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I command and surely I'm with you until the end of the age. I wonder how you feel when you think about mission to your neighbors, your workplaces, your kids' school community. Are you filled with courage? Or have you disengaged? Have you given up even? Do you look at the diminishing influence of Christianity and culture and just think, what's the point? If the answer is yes to any of that, I think it's quite possible that you have shared a similar experience to Lindsay and I. Over the course of about 15 months, beginning not longer, after, uh, not longer after lockdown, Lindsay and I felt pretty overwhelmed. We put it down to circumstance, a building project in our house we thought might never end. Balancing long weekends and night shifts for Lindsay. Pastoral needs in the church were complex in the season of spiritual apathy coming out of lockdown. The exhaustion of having to move venues every six weeks or so because we couldn't get back into the venue we were in before and the council had shut down all access to their buildings. 
Maybe it was just simply having children. It's tiring, isn't it? But it felt heavier than circumstance. We were on a call to Matt and Grace one night. These guys have so beautifully supported us, along with the Stamps and the other elders. And um, Grace leans in at one point and she says, look, you realize you're under attack, don't you? That you're pioneering in enemy territory and he is not happy. That was a real turning point for us. The moment that we realized we were being buffeted around instead of picking up our spiritual armor to fight. We were just accepting it as a way of life. That's just life, that's the way it is. In that moment, we decided to stand firm, to get serious about identifying and praying in the spirit against the enemy's work, to walk in the life and victory of Christ that he has won for us and not just accept the enemy's subtle lies. Are you being pushed around? Are flaming arrows coming your way and you do not even raise your shield? Are you stepping forward with courage into your new life in God's kingdom? Are you advancing the kingdom of God because you know Jesus is with you? As the Apostle Paul introduced the armor of God in Ephesians 6, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is a word of God. He doesn't say our battle is to overcome armies. Not Amorite armies anyway, and not physical armies that we should fight against. He says we are to enter into spiritual battle and to take ground for Jesus. He says to be strong in the Lord, to take your stand for our struggle or fight, as some translations put it, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of his dark, this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Christian life is a fight. And if we want to see multiplication of life in our communities, if we want to see people set free, if we want to see people enjoy the joy of the Lord, if we want to see people have peace to know and believe and love Jesus, to enter into the kingdom and have eternal life, to stop chasing after pursuits that will not last, then we must fight. There is a dynamic tension that keeps taking place throughout Joshua and all of Scripture. Yes, God said to Joshua in verse 3, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. It's a gift. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. But he then says to Joshua, be courageous. It's a command. Get ready. Cross. Advance. March. Blow trumpets. Fight. And so Joshua and verse 10 commands his officers to go through the whole camp to make the announcement. Get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will 
cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Do you see the tension? God gives it, but we've got to step forward in faith. It is God's work, but he demands us to act, to step forward and to take kingdom courage. The kind of courage that trusts the one who fights with them, who stands with them, who has given himself to death so that we might enter into resurrection life. And he wants to share it with the world. The Dutch theologian and former prime minister of the Netherlands, I don't know where I got this quote from, a guy called Abraham Cooper said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. We enter the fight to claim the world for Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army. We need to normalize the battle we're in. Satan loves to trick us into either believing that he and his demons aren't really real or that they are to be feared. Neither are true. After one of our Sunday meetings, I wandered outside of the church. We'd had an amazing time together of worship. It was one of those Sundays where it just kind of overflowed into ministry time. People were praying for each other all over the place. People being healed uh, and being prayed for healing. And uh, people believing for the first time in Jesus. Now, that does not happen every week. <laughs> I can count on probably one hand where it's happened like that. But we were on a high. I stepped out in the church building to be confronted by two or three very excitable student girls saying to me, Ian, Ian, quick, quick, come, come, quick. And so I did. And I find one of the young men in our church is being uh, squared up. There's a guy who's come down past the church and he's, uh, he's trying to fight him. He's swinging around a, a bucky bottle and a glass bottle. And he's, uh, he's trying to fight him. And uh, it's all a bit ugly. Welcome to ministry in Glasgow. <laughs> and so we try and step in and try and sort it all out. It takes a long time to sort out. And a few things happen which makes us realize this isn't just a physical fight. This isn't just a random happening outside the church. It wasn't just a, this guy maybe having some mental health issues or uh, drug abuse. It was a bit more than that. I think it was that and. And I think it's often the case. This poor guy being used by the enemy. And how do I know that? First thing is, this guy who he was trying to fight had just had his wrists prayed for. He'd had chronic pain in his wrists. And he'd had them prayed for, and he'd felt some real improvement. And the guy was squaring him up by grabbing his wrists and twisting them and looking straight in his eye. The next thing that we noticed was that when we did manage to divide the pair, and I mean, this guy did very well not to just lamp him, and uh, thankfully a couple of bigger guys with me um, in between those two, and we were trying to calm the whole thing down. He started shouting at me. He said, look, this guy, he's trying to brainwash you all. Now, he's never been to our church. No way he's got any contact with what's going inside the building. No idea who I am. 
Didn't know I preached most weeks. And then he says to the other elder in the church, he's trying to bully you. Talking about me trying to bully him. Trying to undermine leadership in the church. Again, he would have no idea who there was the other elder in the church. And when one of the guys tried to touch him and say, look, we're, we're trying to keep this as dynamic tension again, isn't it? We love you, but please don't do that. And so he was trying to say, look, we love you. Can we pray for you? And don't touch me, I'm burning. So our prayer for that guy is that he comes back and that we can really sit down with him and pray and see him released. But we are in a battle, make no mistake. But are you fighting? Or are you just allowing yourself to be buffeted around? Be strong and courageous. And it's not carried by our enthusiasm, but Jesus who reigns victorious over sin, Satan, and death. Joshua is to inherit, inherit the land, and he does so not because he has anything special, but because he depends on the victory and the promise of the one who goes with him. Yeah. Alongside others in the church, we have now started to see the work of the enemy being revealed in people's lives. Lies that have confused us about who we are or who God it is. Cultural strongholds that have blinded us from seeing the beauty of the gospel. Family expectations or awful things said and done in the past to us that have kept us from peace. Perhaps you are feeling like there's something that keeps you from seeing the majesty and the goodness of the life that Jesus has on offer for you. We need to normalize this. It's not weird. But we need to be prayed for. Jesus has come to set you free to help you live out your new life. And that might just be the beginning of you seeing freedom in your own life, increased freedom, and then it multiplies. Because then you go, wow! That, that was amazing what God did on me there. I love that. I'm, I'm going to pray for other people that they might be set free as well. I'm going to look for opportunities to do that. When I'm in conversation with people, I'm going to ask questions that might lead to the point where we can pray together. And you see how the kingdom life starts to multiply. Joshua chapter 1 is all about the death of Israel's great leader, and it marks the beginning of a new, courageous, and fruitful life for God's people. It points forward to a better Moses who died a death to set us free from the curse. And to a better Joshua who has invited us in to the blessing of the kingdom of God through resurrection life. In the same way, that Joshua and the people courageously crossed the Jordan and took drowned for God's kingdom, we too must step forward with kingdom courage and enjoy the multiplying effect. What area of your life might you be unwilling to let die? Could the enemy be feeding you a lie that is holding you back? Back from your new life and victorious power in the kingdom of God.
might I encourage you not to leave this room today without being prayed for. Remember, hey, this is normal. This is the battle we're in. Don't be ashamed. Let the grace of God move in this room. I'd like us to finish by reading the words of verse 9. Will you stand with me? After I read this, what I'd love is, uh, as we begin worship, would you be bold and brave? I think we're going to do communion first, is that right? In a minute, okay. So we'll sing first? Okay. When we start singing, would you be bold and find a space and just stick your hand up if you would like prayer? Prayer for increased freedom. Prayer to enter the battle. Maybe you realize, like Lindsay and I, you're being buffeted. And it's time to stand firm. Let God's people minister to you. Let them pray over you. Let the Holy Spirit come and bring victory in your life. Verse 9 says this. Let me read this over you. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go.